Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's October 29, 2021. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Zamora Rising. One of the most widely reported phenomena on the French political scene is the rise in opinion polls of Eric Zamora, who looks set to rival the incumbent president, Emmanuel Macron, in next April's election. While Zamora has decided views on many issues, he opposes unchecked immigration above all as an existential threat to France. Zamora has long been a fringe figure. Some know him as an essayist who states in a polemical form certain of the themes, ideas, and messages found in the work of the Enfant Terrible of French letters, Michel Welbeck. It should be noted here parenthetically that there are those who accuse Welbeck himself of writing pamphlet literature. But Welbeck has denied being familiar with Zamora's work or sharing his political views. Zamora's emergence as a candidate with a real shot in the election next year has sent shivers through a political establishment still outraged at British voters who had the temerity to find fault with the EU and opt to make an exit. Predictably, much of the reaction in the mainstream media to Zamora's gathering campaign and his rise in the polls construes it all as a sign of resurgent racism. An article by Angelique Chrysiphis in the Guardian Weekly's October 15 edition, From Pundit to President, The Far-Right Rise of Eric Zamora, is a case in point. It quotes two sources who are fiercely hostile to Zamora. Stanford University professor Cecile Audi tells The Guardian that Zamora's message is not new, but that it is unprecedented for someone espousing such views to gain the platform that Zamora has acquired. The article also quotes French comedian Yassine Bellatar calling Zamora a provocateur and making the questionable assertion that never before in history has racism run so high. The Guardian piece then briefly quotes Antoine Diers, a spokesman for Les Amis d'Eric Zamor, who seems to view Zamor's appeal as deriving from his status as an outsider in the Trump mode. Quoting Diers is a weak attempt at balance in an article that can barely hide its loathing for Zamor and does not even attempt to place his rise in context. One might expect a slightly longer historical memory from a journal as prestigious as The Guardian. But there is no mention here of the wave of horrific terror attacks, planned and carried out partly by foreign terror cells, that has traumatized the French public in recent years. The November 2015 attacks in Paris killed 130 and injured 416 and plunged France into a state of emergency for months. These incidents came on the heels of the shootings at the offices of the newspaper Charlie Hebdo in January 2015 that killed 12 and injured 11. Here are only a few of the worst incidents in recent years. With crowded public venues and even media organizations targeted by terrorists, many in France obviously have come to feel that the foundations of their society are under assault and that the enemies of France have declared a full-scale war with no regard for the rules of war as conventionally understood. Men, women, and children on the street are in danger. This is not to say that Zamora's supporters are all people of good faith. No doubt there are bigots in their ranks, and his rise is cause for concern. Zamora's campaign would do well to disavow and condemn racism in the strongest possible terms, while the media should balance their criticisms of his campaign with an honest acknowledgement of the context of Zamora's rise.
Radical Fist-Pumping as Education An article in The Economist's October 23 issue entitled Race and Class denounces the moves that eight U.S. states have made to ban critical race theory from public school curricula and makes a case for ethnic studies lessons. The Economist details how San Francisco's school district launched an ethnic studies pilot program in 2010 to 2011, relying heavily on faculty of San Francisco State University. The article cites findings published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that purport to show that the implementation of ethnic studies curricula in San Francisco schools has had good effects. The same Economist article reports findings of Said Bonilla of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and her colleagues purporting to show that the program boosted high school attendance by 6 to 7 percentage points and also had a positive effect on graduation rates. But perhaps the most significant finding reported in the article is the UMass researchers' claim of a higher GPA for those who have enrolled in ethnic studies courses. All these would seem to be impressive achievements, and The Economist clearly wants readers to come away with a positive sense of the impact that ethnic studies programs have had in the face of all those red state naysayers who favor more traditional curricula. But as so often, The Economist cherry-picks facts and figures and fails to explore obvious avenues of inquiry raised by the information it does present. One of the most obvious being, why exactly is it that those who pass through ethnic studies programs end up with higher GPAs? It is questionable to present this finding as if, by itself, it somehow establishes that kids from underprivileged backgrounds magically become high performers academically as a result of having studied racism and tactics for fighting racism. Another obvious possibility is that ethnic studies courses are not as rigorous academically as traditional disciplines, such as calculus, physics, economics, trigonometry, ancient and modern history, philosophy, literature, and languages. Tellingly, the article does not present sample questions in an ethnic studies exam or sample essay topics on which students must write. One suspects that these courses are often highly therapeutic in nature, delivering the emotional payoff that comes from denouncing racism. And that, for many of the questions raised, the answers are built into the questions. Do ethnic studies programs really prepare young people for a world where success requires a bit more than telling radical San Francisco teachers what they'd like to hear? The most suspect feature in The Economist article is its suggestion that components of curricula that boost enrollment are desirable on those grounds alone. By that logic, high schools nationwide could offer students the opportunity to watch Netflix and play Xboxes all day if they so desire on the taxpayer's dime. That would surely boost enrollment to levels never seen before in the history of education. The radical educators had the last laugh. The Economist notes that California plans to make ethnic studies a requirement for graduation throughout the state by 2030. Books are burning. The website Book and Film Globe, edited by Neil Pollock, has given this critic space to review the latest titles released by the Library of America, including, in recent months, collections of the work of O. Henry, S.J. Perelman, and Ray Bradbury. The first of those names is a writer whose zest for storytelling may make you think of Stephen King's credo that when a narrative is strong, it is possible to forgive any number of literary flaws. The second is a comic genius, Sam Parai. The third is a writer whose prescience has few parallels in American letters. 
When published in 1953, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 stood as a warning about where consumerism, instant gratification, and anti-intellectualism might lead. It depicts a dystopia where a corps of firemen make the rounds, not putting out fires but gathering whatever books they can find and setting them ablaze. People in the dystopia may not read. They may not possess the intelligence, awareness, or potential for concerted dissident action that reading fosters. Hence the tyranny of the firemen, to whose ranks the hapless protagonist, Montag, belongs, until his conscience can no longer bear what his crew is doing and he launches an ill-fated one-man rebellion. This critic has had discussions and debates with people about whether cancel culture is real or a chimera concocted for the most cynical partisan ends, and, if real, just how far its depredations go. Are people really burning books? From our vantage point in 2021, the awful truth is that Fahrenheit 451 is a more literal prophecy than readers, critics, and maybe even the novel's own author believed it to be. Yes, ideologues and fanatics are burning books. One example cited in my recent review of the Library of America edition for Book and Film Globe is a book burning organized in Ontario in 2019 as part of a supposed effort at reconciliation with indigenous peoples who have been the victim of racist stereotyping in the past. While people of good faith can agree on the offensive nature of such stereotyping, the act of burning books crosses lines and sets precedents that one would have thought unimaginable in a liberal society predicated on certain concepts of creative freedom and tolerance for different viewpoints. Michael Taub's article in the Wall Street Journal on October 6, 2021, quotes Canada's progressive prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who appears to want to have it both ways. He wants to appear woke and seems terrified of displeasing his constituency. Hence, the Wall Street Journal article quotes Trudeau, stating in the strongest terms that when it comes to reconciliation, non-Indigenous peoples should not tell Indigenous peoples how to proceed. He then offers a minor cavil about his personal disagreement with burning books. This is precisely the kind of supine attitude that Bradbury foresaw paving the way toward anti-intellectual tyranny and the destruction of literature in accordance with the wishes of raging mobs. Bradbury's nightmare is our reality. Heroism in a Doomed Cause The strategic and tactical missteps of U.S. leaders in Vietnam are the subject of numerous academic and popular histories. It is all too easy to overlook or forget the skill, courage, and selflessness of individual soldiers in that conflict. A very few publications keep the flame alive by running profiles of such warriors. An article by William E. Welsh in the fall 2021 issue of Military Heritage magazine offers an account of First Sergeant John L. Canley, one of the heroes on the U.S. side of that pivotal phase of the war known as the Tet Offensive. The article describes Canley as an Arkansas-born patriot who decided to join the Marines after watching John Wayne's performance as a Marine sergeant in the film The Sands of Iwo Jima. According to the article, the underage Canley used a ruse to enter the service, presenting his brother's birth certificate and transposing the initials to make it appear to be his own. Upon arriving in Vietnam, he quickly saw service with Alpha Company of the 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. The article details how U.S. commanders urgently sought to supply reinforcements for the defense of the city of Hue, 
which had come under attack on the night of January 30 to 31, 1968, and in particular for the protection of the U.S. administered Military Assistance Vietnam Compound in a residential part of the city on the south bank of the Perfume River. The article reminds us how the communist offensive caught both U.S. and Army of the Republic of Vietnam forces off guard, jolting them out of their assumption that no one would launch a brutal military offensive against a city with such an important and even sacred identity in Vietnam's culture. Relying partly on the cover of tanks from the 3rd Tank Battalion, 3rd Marine Division, the article relates, the men of Alpha Company advanced into Hue, where ferocious street fighting ensued, and the wounding of another officer opened up a breach in the command of Alpha Company that Canley quickly stepped in to fill. The article recounts how Canley's courage and leadership in the face of heavy fire from North Vietnamese forces led to the relief of the overwhelmed and pinned-down compound, and how Canley went on to lead daring operations and fighting that raged literally from building to building and room to room as the Marines sought to drive communist forces out of high schools, churches, and government offices. For his heroism, Canley received a Navy Cross, upgraded in 2018 to a Medal of Honor. The bravery and skill of John Canley and soldiers like him are all the more poignant with the perspective we have in 2021. Here is a soldier who redefined heroism in the service of a cause that failed thanks to forces far beyond his control. The strategy, if you can call it that, of running around South Vietnam trying to stop the advance of communist forces was doomed, partly due to the porousness of Vietnam's border with Laos and the ability of the communists to sneak men and material through the jungle in order to amass forces for attacks. A direct U.S. assault on Hanoi and a paralyzing blow to the spine of the communist war machine might conceivably have ended the conflict within weeks. But, tragically, the approach was to prosecute the war in a more gingerly fashion, thrusting men like Canley into innumerable small engagements where, no matter how bravely they performed in combat, they can never alter the course of the war on a macro level. There would always be another surprise attack, another gap in the defenses, another desperate situation. The very name Military Assistance Vietnam Compound speaks to this piecemeal approach. Properly understood, the purpose of a military campaign is not to provide assistance or lend support, but to crush the enemy through the application of overwhelming force. If a power is unwilling to commit to doing this, and to being totally open about the nature of the undertaking, it is better to stay out of the conflict. One would like to think that certain people have learned the lessons of this tragedy, but that was clearly not the case in Somalia in 1993, and, still less, in America's more recent, disgracefully concluded misadventure in Afghanistan. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hotline.